Father, we thank you that right now, right here in this moment, you see us and you know us. I pray that time would almost stand still and we'd be unaware of any other competing thing or thought or idea that would try and grab our mind. I pray we'd have the clarity to hear from you. I pray we would have our eyes open by your spirit to see you. I pray that you would breathe on this gathering right now in such a way that 20 years and 50 years and a thousand years from now, we would still be whispering of what took place here. And we just believe that gathered in your name, this meeting is not normal or, or, or ordinary. It's pregnant with power and potential. We believe this and pray this over every hurting heart, inviting the doubting, inviting the skeptic, but we'll embrace you, Jesus, and love you. In your name we pray, and everyone who agreed said together, amen. amen. Hey, you can be seated. Thank you, worship team, for serving us so well. All of Fresh Life Easter, it's been a great joy to sing with you. I'm excited about the Easter uh, gatherings. It's always, it's the best. It's, it's, there's nothing like it. Again, preach about the resurrection, which is really what we do every weekend. So not, not a lot different there. But uh, we do want to invite you back. As glad as we are, you came today. Um, this new series, we're starting Rock and Soul. It's going to be amazing. Really excited about it. So love to have you come back for that. And uh, it's going to be so good. Also wanted to throw out there in case anyone's watching or here from one of these places, we're starting a Fresh Life Church in Butte, Montana. Uh, yep. So if you know anybody in Butte or you live in Butte, uh, also starting one in Great Falls, Montana. So excited. Uh, love that. Maelstrom base there and people coming in from all over the place. Love that city. And uh, also we are going to be opening one in Jackson, Wyoming. So if you know anybody, that's our first in Wyoming. And we're thrilled about it. Uh, just the other side of Yellowstone from our Bozeman location. But, but we're going to be starting these. And if you're like, well, when? I, that's awesome. I need to know. I, I, all on the same day, actually. And the date is August 13th. So excited to announce finally the date uh, that these three campuses are going to be opening up. And we're thrilled about it. If you, uh, or know, you know someone who lives in one of these areas, let them know. There's a, a, another church coming to join in the work that the great churches in those cities are, are doing. And if they want to be a part of something beginning, or maybe perhaps you live somewhere else in the country watching church online or on television or are at one of our locations and you would say, you know, I, I would love to get in on the ground floor of something being built. I'd love to, to see not a thing become a thing and me be a part of the thing happening. Uh, maybe we would just uh, challenge you by that date. Uh, to be able somehow to relocate to one of these communities, love the people, get a job, work, get to know people, and, uh, and see what God would do through you. And we would love that. Uh, to get more information or to sign up to do that, uh, freshlife.church is the website, and you can get all the info you need there. So, hey, if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be. Or if you have an app, I love how there's apps that can just like get you on the scriptures. It's such a, such a gift that we have. 1 Corinthians 15. And if you don't have a copy of uh, the scriptures, then you can um, feel awkward as the rest of us read from our Bible. No, I'm joking. That's a joke. I would never want you to feel awkward. Uh, we always put the scripture verses on the screen. So you have the biggest Bible of anybody. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be. I'm preaching a message this Easter called All or Nothing. All or Nothing. 
That can be frustrating, though, when you encounter it, something that's an all-or-nothing deal. Like, if you didn't know it was that way, and now you discover it. Like, if you just wanted one bag of chips, but you, you were told, oh, no, you have to buy 42 bags of chips. Well, what are you doing at Costco? Of course it's going to be that, that way. It'll actually be labeled right there, not for individual sale. You can't break open the package of batteries at Walgreens because you just need one you know, of the double A's. You could buy all eight of them, right? Not sold separately. Either you're leaving with all those batteries or you're stealing the one that you need. No, no, don't do that. No, all or nothing, right? That's the idea. There are also all or nothing people, right? All or nothing people. How many of you show of hands every location where you would say, I'm an all or nothing person? Raise it up. Okay, yeah, well, I don't know if I believe you because some of you were slow and an all or nothing person would never respond slow to that. You would either shoot it up like dogmatically, yeah, what? Or you keep it down like, I don't, I don't raise my hand when people tell me to. Nothing. <laughs> Here's how you get the truth, though. Not my first rodeo. How many of you are married to an all or nothing person? There's no gray. It's all, yeah. Notice my wife uh, raised her feet. That's interesting. Jenny, that hurts my feelings. 13 years later, really? Is that going to play me? I found on the internet a uh, little test. You might be an all or nothing person. Uh, so uh, this is found online. So that means it has to be true. You might be an all or nothing person if going out with friends means you are either leaving stone cold sober or under the table. You are going under the table, one of the two, but you're not going home buzz. You are it's all or nothing when it comes to drinking. Uh, with, when it comes to fashion, you are either dressed to the nines, hair all did, right, looking fly, or you are in sweatpants, but very seldom anything in between. That's just convicting. Elastic waistbands. I mean, who invented elastic? But praise Jesus on his Easter for that, man. All right. Uh, you either can't be bothered to make your bed or you are cleaning every crevice of your apartment with a toothbrush, right? You're fine with a slovenly existence. And all of a sudden, you're like, it must be cleaned right now, three in the morning, got to do it. Who's been there? That was me as a bachelor. Like, I would just be like, whatever, I'm sleeping in wrappers, it's fine. Uh, they add warmth to my bed and then it's going to save all my heating bill. Insulation like a squirrel. Stop. Here we go. When it comes to working out, you either are in a, in a completely uh, decked out kit, head to toe, matching logos, everything, I'll just do it, right? Or, or, or Reebok if you're lame. And um, wait, what? No, 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 no. CrossFit has redeemed it. It's fine. Um, I'm teasing. These are the jokes, people. Oh, oh, I didn't give the punchline. So you're wearing your kit and either working out two hours a day or you completely let yourself go and you are now eating cake in the shower. So that is, man, that's, that's quite, sheesh, cake in the shower. How could you come to that, right? Can you imagine, like, your spouse discovering you? Like, what happened? Well, I was eating cake, and I realized I needed a shower. So I did two birds and one stone, people, right? That is not good. The point is, all or nothing means no middle ground. It's either completely one way or completely another way. And I think that resonates perfectly with Easter, what is Easter? What is this Passion Week? What are we talking about when we talk about Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Well, Paul puts it for us very simply in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, the Bible doesn't play favorites when it comes to chapters, but I, a dear commentator that I, I really respect named John Phillips, he said that perhaps 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. And in it, he says in verse 3, I passed on to you, Paul speaking, what was most important, muy importante. 
and what had also been passed on to me. Don't miss this is what he's trying to get you to see. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Christianity, which here in Paul's own estimation is summarized in the Easter story, is an all or nothing occasion if there ever, if there ever was one. There are all sorts of implications. There are all sorts of applications. There are all sorts of things that are incidentally true after the fact when it comes to the teachings of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus, right? Easter releases all sorts of awesome stuff into the, into the world. I mean, and, and in the name of following Jesus, a lot of horrible things have been done by those who purport to follow Jesus. And we should never blame Jesus for what's been done in his name. But, but when we come to Christ, there's some amazing truth that's, that's released out of the story of, of Jesus. Peace and strength and heaven and, you know, peeps. Like all sorts of stuff has come into the world as a result of Easter. Like it's, it's, it's been great, right? But, but, but what I'm trying to tell you is that Easter and Christianity and following Jesus is not for sale separately. It's not for individual sale. You, you can't just grab one bag of chips. I want the peace part. I, I'm gonna grab this bag of chips or this battery. I like the heaven part. If it's not all true, none of it's true, at least according to Paul. So what that means then is we must face up to the fact that if Christ is not risen, then none of this makes any sense. And it all falls down. The emperor is wearing no clothes. So the question we have to ask is when it comes to Easter, is it true or is it a lie? And perhaps it's a lie. Perhaps Christ didn't rise. Perhaps it was just to be taken allegorically. Not seriously. His body died, but in spirit form he rose. And in spirit form he inspires us. Perhaps that is, is, is what is to be understood. And that means his body is risen. So that's a problem, though, because of the empty tomb. That's a problem, though, because of all the appearances of Christ, of people who saw him. Okay, okay, fine. Well, then be that way. Perhaps Christ didn't rise from the dead because he never died in the first place. Some have postulated. Maybe Christ hanging on the cross, as he did, only fell into a coma. His heart slowed enough to convince everybody there, man, that guy's dead, right? It had to be really good because these Roman centurions and soldiers that were given charge of his execution, they were professionals and they did this for a living every day. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. At one point in the Roman Empire and their occupation of Palestine, there were so many people crucified, they ran out of holes to stick the crosses in and wood to make another cross, right? So they, they, these were hardened men of war. And uh, they had incentive to make sure whoever they were killing died, like their life would be required if someone escaped and was not dead. But maybe, just maybe, Jesus wasn't dead. He was just mostly dead, <laughs> enough to fool everybody and Miracle Max and the whole, the whole situation. And so, taken down from the cross in his coma, he was put into 
the grave. And you know what's crazy? The weekend in the tomb just revived him. It perked him right up. Uh, you know, having no medical attention and being in a cold cave for three days wrapped in 100 pounds of spices and linen strips will do that to a guy. What's really fantastic about this is that without a drop of Gatorade or a, or a bit of bacitracin, he was able to roll the two-ton stone out on his own, get past the Roman guard that was stationed there. And, uh, and, and my, my favorite part of all of this is that when he finally found his disciples and he convinced them, I'm here, I rose, having not risen, having just fallen asleep into a coma and then woken back up, I was resuscitated um, without a defibrillator or anything. He was able to convince them to follow him and to live the rest of their lives, most of them uh, to, to, to die martyrs' deaths for somebody who had convinced them he had risen. And that was the message, the core tenet of, of Christianity. That which I received, I delivered to you. Christ died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. And, and, and to me, I'm like, really? How did they not stifle their urge to say, you need a doctor, right? Because he wouldn't have been triumphant. If he was hanging on, he, he would have been, you know, I have conquered the grave. Like, you don't look like you've conquered anything. You, 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 you need medical supervision immediately, right? But, but perhaps that's what's happened. Or maybe... He didn't rise because the women who discovered the empty tomb were at the wrong tomb. It's possible. There was a lot of tombs. These are women we're talking about. You know how there were directions. It's a confusing thing getting around a graveyard. And you know, it was early and they were emotional. And they, listen, stop it. The sun, <laughs> the sun was just rising. It was early on the sunrise of the first day of the week. So facing the sun, squinting as they were, weeping, the mascara ran, and they, they, they thought they were, it was an honest mistake. Any one of us could make it. Because we know Joseph of Arimathea, a just man, loaned Jesus his tomb, gave his tomb for Jesus. So you know, maybe they ended up at Broseph's tomb. I, it, it was just next door to it, and Broseph had just died, and they were preparing it so it was open. It looked exactly the same. And the, 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 the tomb was there ready, the slab where the body would be laid. And they ended up at this empty tomb. And they were like, oh my gosh, he's alive. He's risen. We've got to go quickly tell the disciples. Now, you have some problems there because that fixes one problem, but it creates a couple others. Like, did, did all of the disciples then who rushed down, they also get fooled by Broseph's tomb? And, and, and when the news started to spread, and began to stir, and began to stir. And there began, there was this public outcry. And, and literally thousands of people at a time were responding to these resurrection witnesses who were preaching the gospel with power and boldness in the name of a risen Savior who had done miracles and said stuff like, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. And I am the light of the world. And I am the door. And I am the good shepherd. And I am the vine. And said these sorts of things. And then backed it up by getting up from the grave and was seen by all these people. And they're telling the story. You're telling me then that none None of the religious leaders, the enemies of Jesus who were hostile and antagonistic towards him, ever decided, you know what, we could go check the tomb ourselves. In which case, they would have stumbled down to Joseph's tomb, popped open the lid, and been able to produce the rotting corpse of Jesus the Messiah. In quotes. Like, oh, really? This is who you're believing in? You're telling me they never thought of that. And what about the angels that the women said they saw at the tomb? Did their heavenly GPS unit malfunction? Were they at Broseph's tomb also? The angels who said there, why do you seek the dead among the, li the living among the dead? He's not here. Jesus is not here. He's gone before. Tell Peter. Tell the, right? Or, or, you know what? Actually, I think there might be a simpler, more elegant solution. And the more elegant solutions are often the more simple ones. Perhaps 
Jesus didn't rise from the dead because that's impossible. And we live in a world that's governed by laws and miracles fly in the face of what we know of this world. And so Jesus could not be the son of God, which was what he demonstrated by rising from the dead and defeating the grave, man's worst enemy, and destroying sin in the, pro in the process and securing salvation for us and securing forgiveness for us. Perhaps none of those things need to be true because the easy solution is Jesus isn't God because there is no God. And this is what's whispered and spoken and thundered and written in classrooms and conversations and coffee shops the world over. We're beyond that. We've evolved beyond that. There was a point when God was invented and needed to keep people in line in this medieval era and thunderbolts and all of the rest. But here's the truth. We now know empirically there is no God. This world was caused by a cosmic accident billions of years ago, and life as we know it is the product of random chance. Something emerged from the spark that caused there to be some movement, and, and through various forms that Darwin clearly laid out, we can explain how we got from tadpole to wearing a pants and having a cappuccino. Like, it's all right there. I've seen it in the middle. It was a monkey at one point. There were some posture problems. My mom would tell you I still have them. But, but we know how this whole thing works. And so there's no room for God. We can explain everything. So clearly, here's what is not true. Christ and his resurrection and some pipe dream of pie in the sky by and by after we die. And this is the same sort of thing the Corinthians were being told after they put their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. The same thing you're hearing in classes, and if you haven't, you will. The same thing that people are telling you. There cannot be a God, man-made God, and not the other way around. And so these Corinthians, who had heard this message preached as it spread, by the way, very rapidly, across the entire Roman Empire and has rattled the world. Ever heard of Harvard? Started to train people to preach the gospel. Ever heard of the Red Cross? Started by believers who wanted to meet needs. You look at some of the greatest pieces of art and music and poetry and what is at the center of many of them. It's this idea of exalting Christ, the risen King, Handel's Messiah, and, and, and the, the, the frescoes and the paintings and the sculptures, et cetera, et cetera, all in the name of one who supposedly doesn't exist because we know that there is no God. And so this is what the Corinthians were being told because the idea of a resurrection that Christ rose that then had implications for all of us rising one day, ain't no grave gonna hold my body down, Johnny Cash would say, right? If that's all true, the Corinthians were being told that's, that's hogwash. They're saved, they're following Jesus, but they're being told by their friends, by their peers, by the professors, they're being told that can't happen because dead men tell no tales. And so they wrote to Paul, the one who preached when they were saved. And they said, what, what gives, man? Do, do, we, do, do, we, do we live on or not? Is there a resurrection for us or not? We're being made fun of. We thought people were gonna high five us after we got saved. And instead they mocked us publicly in our philosophy 101 class and made fools of us for calling on the name of Jesus because of how horrible religion is. And they started talking about the Inquisition and they were talking about the priests that molest the boys. And I didn't have an answer for any of it. All I thought was, well, I was glad that I wasn't going to hell and I'm going to heaven. But if that's clearly fanciful fable, then you know what, I'll just drop it. 
Paul wrote back and said, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll pick it up in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we, Jesus' followers, are of all men the most pitiable. You see, friends, take away the resurrection. You take away all of Christianity. And this all becomes just smoke and mirrors. This all becomes a ruse, ploy, a trick, a fabrication. And so what are the implications then? Because the simple solution is, well, if there is no God, there obviously is no resurrection. There obviously is no Christianity. There obviously is no faith. That seems to solve everything. And it seems so simple just to say, hey, I don't know how life is. There was a bang, and then here we are. Something came out of the mud. It's a monkey wearing pants. It's good. Like that, that seems to solve. But that also creates problems because some of the implications, and you should maybe look before you leap, are, are, and I've just given four of them. Let, let's, let's take just note of a couple of the implications of a godless world, as Paul is talking about here, where Christ does not rise and people do not rise and there's no life after death. Number one, that means there's no hope. There is no hope. Any words of comfort you would write to me when my daughter died, any words of comfort I would give to you when your mother died, anything we would say to one another while someone undergoes brain surgery and, and they do not survive the operation, anything we would say to somebody struggling with uh, early onset Parkinson's or, or Alzheimer's, they, they would just all be blah, blah, blah. Because nothing we would say to you about, there's a plan in this and it's going to be okay. And even if it doesn't work out like you think, what do you, God... No, well wishes. Any words of hope would become instantly empty because there's no purpose for us to look to. There's no hope. You'll never see, Paul says, anybody you've ever said goodbye to at the grave. You will not see them again. There is not a reunion without God. Your, your faith is futile in the hope of a hereafter. So hope goes away when God goes away. Uh, there, there's a second implication and that is meaning. There is no meaning apart from God. There has to be that intelligent design and thought put into a world. And if there is no creator in, in this world that we're living in, which is pretty epic, by the way, that it just happened. Like, well done, cosmic forces at work, right? Because you think about the fact that we are right now, at this very moment, on a planet that is spinning around. And at the same time as it's spinning around, it's traveling around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour, and there's not even a breeze outside. And while that's happening, we are the perfect distance from the sun to avoid freezing or burning up. It's been called the Goldilocks environment, and it's the only known situation like it in the entire universe as we sit here with our cappuccinos in our pants. Sweats if we're off duty, right? So, 
So it's pretty amazing, but there's no meaning to it all, right? Because it's all just, it just happened, and there's a, it's all determined and, and can be explained by, by physics and on the periodic table, and here's why you are what you are. Here's why you like what you like. Here's, here's, there's a reason for everything, and it has nothing to do with you having decisions that you have made. People like, like, like Hawking would say, et cetera, it's all determined. It's all it, from billions of years ago. What's happening right now is playing out exactly as, as it should, but that means then that there's no meaning. And that means then that you getting up to work on, on a Monday and going to sit in a cubicle and the paper gets stapled and clipped and signed and over here, it's, it's meaningless. And, and any money you accumulate, it's meaningless. Any, any business you build that, that has your, your name on it, it's, it's nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. The, the richest man that we know of in scripture is a man named Solomon. And he was so wealthy, people sent uh, ships and envoys and ambassadors to, from all over the world just to see the kingdom. And he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes where he was trying to find meaning apart from God if he could. He looked for it in wine. He looked for it in women. He looked for it in wisdom. He looked for it in work. He looked for it in wealth. And he said at the end of the day, it's all throw pillows. You, you, th you put them on the bed, you take them off the bed. You put them on the bed, you take them off the bed. You put them on the bed, you take them. You don't even sleep on them. They're just, what, what, is it, what are they good for? Like I go to the bed, like you're a barrier to me sleeping. And then I'm expected to put you back when I'm done. It doesn't make any sense. And maybe you would say, oh, well, that's not me, Levi. I am not into money. I am anti-materialism. I buy all my clothes at thrift store. Yeah, I'm going to pop some tags. And you would say to me, this idea of a company, I'm actually against corporate America. I would never go to Target. I only buy local. I don't panic. It's always organic. And I'm a vegan. And I drive a Prius. And I care about the ozone. I'm conscious about my carbon footprint. And you would say, I want to conserve natural resources. And I care about the spotted owl very much, thank you. And I would never choke a dolphin with my plastic six pack from my, you know, whatever. And, 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 and oh, that's great. You sound amazing. But, but listen to me very carefully. There's no meaning in your efforts either. Because if it's true that life is all random and we just so happen to be Goldilocksing our way around a sun that's not a sun, it's actually a star. And what happens to every star? It shoots. And a cricket wishes upon it with a little boy that's wooden. And when our star inevitably shoots, what happens to the planet that's hitching a ride around it at 67,000 miles an hour? Bye-bye, lights out, and scene, and show. And so your efforts to save a planet, it's doomed. It doesn't matter. And nothing you do does in a world without God. That's the disturbing conclusion that Leo Tolstoy came to, the author of War and Peace. He said, my question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And it was this that Paul was speaking to when in the same passage we've been reading, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, you know what? If it's true there's no God, there's no resurrection, then we might as well just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So strike up a song and let's, have, let's, let's crack open a cold one and that is as good as you're going to get. 
Oh, also, while on the discouraging things that I'm telling you tonight and this morning and this week list, uh, how about this? There's actually no such thing as you at all. What you call you, you're not referring to your body. You're referring to some part of your personality or some part of your spirit or some part of your soul that you would refer to. You're referring to you as distinct from your body. But if there is no God and this world, it all basically came out of an accidental test tube being dropped somewhere and who you are can be explained by biology and physics and chemistry, then guess what? The idea or notion of a soul is, is, is completely foreign to that. That means then that you, like Christopher Hitchens said, you don't have a body, you are a body. And he chastised his doctors. Christopher Hitchens is one of the thought leaders of the so-called new atheism movement that's really brought a sexiness and a sizzle to being an atheist. Uh, these days, Christopher Hitchens died of cancer. Uh, before that, he wrote a lot of very popular books, one of them being God is not great, why religion poisons everything. And he said, his doctors kept coming to him and going, your body's responding well to this course of treatment, Mr. Hitchens, and your, your, your body's fighting this really well, and the chemo is doing this. And, and he finally he stopped and he said, listen, I, I don't have a body. I am a body. Why? Because he was being honest about the implications of a worldview that had no room for God. He is his body. And when his body powers down, that's the end of Hitchens. That's the end of the story. And that means then for you and for me, I'm not Levi and you're not Sam or Billy and you don't have kids and you don't have a wife. I'm a body, they're a body. And we, all, we can explain reproduction as our species trying to keep itself alive from extermination. That's why we reproduce. You don't have children. That's just a little body that incidentally came from your body and, and nothing matters. And you're not even really you. Aren't you glad you came to church? You're like we should have gone to the other church with the khakis because this is very dark, right? <laughs> There's a fourth. Don't, there's more. This, this also means that none of your deepest desires make any sense at all. Take away God, no Christ resurrection. What do we have now? We have a world where we all crave things that technically don't exist. Riddle me this, Batman. What do we think of lying in our beds late at night that's in common with each other? We long for forgiveness. We long for peace. We long for transcendence. We are all on a quest for immortality. We crave something in our soul that technically isn't there because we don't have a soul, so there can't be a hole in our soul. But why do we all feel like we're missing something? Why do we all feel like no matter how much money we have or Instagram followers or what truck we drive or what we've done or who knows our name, that we somehow want something more and it's running through our fingers like we're trying to grab oil? Why do we all feel this way? Why would we all ache for something we shouldn't even care about? And here's a big one. Why would we all be so obsessed with justice? There's, there's, there's not a more hot ticket item out there trending on Twitter today. We want justice. We want justice. That's not fair. That's not fair, right? That man should not have been dragged from his airplane seat. That's not fair. But in a world governed by natural selection, none of us should care about fair. 
you ought to, you shouldn't, that's mine, I deserve better, this world shouldn't be that way. That, that should not be the strong praying on the weak. That's what Darwinian thinking is. We should be applauding someone who's been taken advantage of. That's how the world should, that is how the world should be. That everything is as it is when someone's being taken advantage of by someone who's stronger. What doesn't make sense is taking care of a disabled person. What doesn't make sense is tenderly nursing someone who's no longer adding any value in their body to society. It was C.S. Lewis, once atheist, then devout Jesus follower, who had this exact epiphany. He said, my problem or my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. My argument against God collapsed for the argument depended on saying that the world was unjust. I hope you caught what he's saying because it's used, I've heard it, I've said it. If there's a God of love, why would he allow this suffering? Interestingly enough, we appeal to something that if God wasn't there, wouldn't exist, and we throw it in his face as our proof that he's not there. But just remember, when you argue against wickedness in the world and you appeal to it, you are actually arguing for the existence of God. That's the thought that I discovered in a book called Stealing from God by Frank Turek. And if you'd like to think more on the things we're talking about, his work's great. He also wrote one called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So continuing on in this direction, we've arrived at some disturbing things. We, we found out, first of all, that there's no hope if there is no God, if there is no Christ. But if what Paul delivered to us that he first received and then he gave out is true and Christ did die and was buried and did rise from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, you could just scratch that out because hope has a name. That's the truth of Easter and that's the power of the gospel. Hope has a name. It's not just some idea we long for. You can actually call out to him and he will hear your prayer. And, and as for this, 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 this meaninglessness of life, that life has no meaning, well, well if, if the gospel account is correct, well, you can just rip that up right away because everything matters. Your job matters. The world matters. If it's going to be transformed, the spotted owl matters and the wolf matters. And, and what you do at your job and how you design the graphics and how you deliver the pizzas, everything can be done to the glory of God since the deeds men do live on both for good and for evil. We can go to work tomorrow with purpose, with a spring in our step, knowing that people matter and work matters and art matters and music matters and all can be done to worship God and bring him glory. And we can de derive joy from what our creator has put into our hands. And as for this concept of you not even really being you because you don't have a soul and when you die, that's it. It's just game over. It's like a video game got unplugged and, and moved out of the arcade. Wreck it, Ralph. And that's, you're going to get stuck in the game, gone turbo in the power circuits. Listen to me. You can scratch that out because here's the truth of scripture. You will never not be you. Not one second, not 1,000 years, not 10,000 years from now will you cease to be you. 
Jesus proved this when he said, God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, isn't he? And that's all through the Bible. God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus said, when God used that designator to describe himself, was not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all dead? So why would he describe himself as a God of people if they didn't exist anymore? So they were out of their bodies. And they were still Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And guess what? Right now, somewhere where their bodies have already been ashes to ashes, dust to dust, they are still themselves. And when one day Jesus fulfills his promise, and at the last trump, when the angel makes the sound with a shout, Christ shall redeem every body from the jaws of death, one speck, one cell, one piece of DNA, that'll be all he needs to create a glorified, transformed version of the body that you lived in during your sojourn no matter how brief it was. And when you're back in your resurrected body, like Jesus' resurrected body, living on a transformed resurrected earth that will not ever fade because he won't let the sun turn off because he will be the sun. You will still be you. In your body, out of your body, it doesn't make a difference, somebody, right? Last but not least, what of these desires that if there is no God, make no sense? Well, what you can write down here is that because of what Jesus has done, there is an answer for every ache. An answer for every ache. Everything you've ever had a desire for in a good way, you've longed for. It's, it's not because it doesn't exist. It's because it does. The universe remembers what life was like before the fall. And that's why we crave something that technically we shouldn't know about, heaven, eternal life. We were made for a person and a place. The person is Jesus, the place is heaven. And until those two things are snapped into place, you will always feel like a jet ski with the kill switch pulled. You'll always feel like something is missing. I like how C.S. Lewis put it, to quote him once more. He said that heaven, once attained, it will even work backwards, turning pain that we experience in agony into a form of glory. I dare you to believe that you, you, Jesus is safe to follow because maybe you didn't get to take that trip and maybe you didn't get to meet that person. Maybe you never got to have kids or maybe, you, maybe whatever your desire is in some righteous way, even in this world, if you're fertile, uh, unfertile and you can't have kids or whatever it would, it would be, you were in a wheelchair your whole life, that heaven's going to be so good that at some point you're going to be in eternity at some point working and laughing and dancing and singing and writing whatever you're doing and God's going to be yeah remember that pain you went through oh I, I can't even hardly remember that Jesus it was 47,000 years ago it was like, yeah but I got something for you he'll surprise you with and all of a sudden it'll work backwards turning a pain and an agony you experience into a form of glory I'm telling you there's an answer for every ache scripture says Jesus is the desire of all nations now, comparing and contrasting these two lists, I don't think any one of us would say, I think the first list is better. No hope, no meaning, no me, that's all, yee, right? I see what you've done, Levi. See what you've done, and uh, duh, Christianity's more preferable to, to that list, that you've, you've, you've done such a great job of painting my belief system in that light. But you, you're mistaking me. I don't think you should choose to follow Jesus as I have because Christianity is a better option. I could make up the dumbest religion ever. My religion could be like, you know what? We all get jelly beans on Thursdays. You'd be like, that sounds great. Like I could make all these perks. Like, yeah, you get first in line at Disneyland. Like I could make up the dumbest religion and just because it's more preferable to the alternative would not mean it's true. Horrible and disturbing does not mean untrue. 
I don't think you should choose Jesus because he's a better option. No, I think you should choose Jesus because this book says he is risen. And he didn't just say on the resurrection. He got out from the grave on the third day and demonstrated. He gave you a product demonstration, a preview of coming attraction. No, 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 stop, stop, stop. Levi, stop it, Levi. That's not fair. Now you got them on their feet. That's not fair. That's not fair. Why? Because you still haven't proven to me that Christ is risen. So that might be true, and I might accept that it's even the linchpin, and if it were true, everything would be true. But, but, but why should I believe that Christ is risen? And I would say you should look into that. Because as it's been said, there is no greater fact attested to in history than the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's been said we have, we have a better reason to believe that Christ rose from the dead than that Julius Caesar ever conquered Britain or that Homer was the one who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, or that there ever was such a person as Emperor Tiberius. But I would say, and I've spent this week brushing up on, on the historicity of the resurrection. I've read six or 700 pages, just sort of reinvigorating my heart in preparation to preach. And I would say this, that the most compelling to me would be these three. Number one, the stories of the resurrection that we find at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If they are made up, <laughs> if they were made up, they would quite frankly, have been written so much better. That's just my humble opinion. Like if you're writing this book and the purpose is to get to this epic moment of Christ's resurrection, wouldn't you be like, he came wreathed in glory with laser beams shooting out of his eye. It would be like, it would be like Revelation 1. You would write it like, like as the Bible prophesies that he will come back. You'd write it like that. You'd be like, he came and vanquished the tomb. He kicked open the sepulcher, right? <laughs> I am Jesus, 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 Jesus. He would have an echo and an amplification somehow. But that's not at all how it is. It's so weird and random and squirrely. It's like the women come and they, it's like they, they, they're talking to the gardener. It's like, oh, I'm not actually Jesus. So uh, like, uh, shouldn't you be glowing? Right? It's like, and, then, and then he's like, she shows up. When, he, when the disciples first finally see him, the disciples, they, they, the ones who supposedly made this stuff all up, right? The, Peter and Jan, James and John, they're all, they're all there. And, 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 and if you're making this up, you wouldn't just have Jesus be like, hey, guys, got any food? Like, it's like, it's like a Budweiser commercial. Like, it's like, ah. Or maybe, just maybe, they're almost apologetic as they write these things. Now, this is how it happened. So we're just going to write it down like this. Uh, secondly, I would say the women who'd first discovered Jesus. And you're like, Levi, this is the second time in this message you've hated on women. I, am, I, I have girl power, and I'm not afraid to use it. Stop, stop, stop. I'm talking about the ancient world and how it worked. In this day, look into it in the Roman Empire, women could not give legal testimony in court. So if you're fabricating this thing, as the disciples supposedly did, to purport this, this message, right? And they did a pretty good job of putting themselves in a bad light because they were all scared. Peter denied him three times before a fire, then hid behind locked doors, and that's why the women went, right? So, so Peter made this up. Don't you think he would put himself in a little bit better light? But, 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 but the women, you, you would not write them in because it's not going to be credible. You're trying to get this thing to be believable. Why would, why would you write that women found him? Why wouldn't you say John Mark did or, or anybody did? But maybe that's just how it happened. Happened to me one of them was a prostitute. That, that, well, that's just it's going into because that's what happened. I would say the third and the most robust, of course, would be the same evidence that would be persuasive in any court. Not one, not two, not three, but in many, 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 many instances, there were witnesses who got to see Jesus, talk to Jesus, walk with Jesus, eat with Jesus after he died. 
Jesus was, Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 15. He was seen by Peter, and then by the 12, and then by James. James, 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 listen to this. James, James was his brother. James did not believe in Jesus, Jesus' entire ministry until the very end when he saw him. Let me ask you this. What would it take for you to believe that your brother is the son of God? At the very least, the resurrection. And that's what it was for James. And he didn't just believe in Jesus. He wrote a book of the Bible in, in favor of his brother Jesus who rose from the dead. And then it says 500 people at one time saw him. 500 people at one time. And then Paul, I love how honest Paul is because 1 Corinthians 15 was written 15 to 20 years after Christ rose. Think back 15 years in your life, 20 years in your life. How many of the people you knew then have died? Handful, dozen, 20? Okay, there's 480 you can go talk to. There are most of them, what is Paul saying when he writes this? They're still living. This information is an invitation to do your own investigation. He was saying, walk down the road, go talk to him. Be like, hey, do you find me just? Yeah, it's the craziest thing ever. Okay, that's interesting. How about you? How about you? We saw him, we were there. Well, it was a mass hallucination. Really mass hallucination, people say. Let me ask you a question. How was your dream last night? Does your wife know? Does your wife know how your dream was? The point is dreams are very personal. 500 people who many of them went on eventually to die martyrs' deaths. Blaise Pascal said, I believe the witness that gets his throat slit. Watergate, how many people flipped? How many people are willing to, to out those to save themselves? But these are people who went to the stake, were burnt, were killed, were di died deaths that they could have stopped if they just said, you're right, it's a lie. It's a lie, I didn't see him. But these are people, and the reason Christianity resounds through the world today and is being preached all across the world is because Christ rose from the dead as the scripture said he would. And people saw him and he changed their lives. And now today you have a chance to put your faith in his hand. But it's your choice. And that's my last question. I've made my case. I can't do anything to make your decision for you. I've made mine. But I think you should give your life to Christ. My question is, would you like to? How about now? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, all of us praying, aware of the reality of mortality, aware of the fact that we have this opportunity. We're not promised any other. And we could today settle our relationship with God once and for all, receiving peace, receiving grace. You say, but I got issues with what the Bible says about sex, or I've got issues with what the Bible says about money. I just say, look, if Christ isn't risen, none of that matters. But if he is risen, everything he says matters. So would you give your life to a risen Lord and let him work all these things out for you? Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you're here and you would like to trust Christ, I'm gonna pray a prayer and I'm gonna ask you to pray it out loud with me. Then afterwards, I'm gonna ask you to shoot your hand up in the air and be able to give you a Bible and encourage you. So put it up and keep it up. But first, the prayer, this has to come from your heart. This has to come from your soul. I'm gonna ask you to say it out loud and the church is gonna say it with you to show that we're standing with you. You're not in this alone. Pray this prayer with me if you would like to trust Christ for salvation. Dear God, I believe, I have fears, I have doubts, but I have faith. I believe Christ died for me, rose from the dead. I give you my life, take control in Jesus' name. Now with your head still bowed and eyes closed, I'm gonna ask you when I count to three in just a moment, I'm gonna count one, two, three. And when I get to three in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand up as an act of the will 
a way of saying, I'm taking a stand, I'm settling and sealing this. I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand and keep it up. This is something you're nailing down. You're gonna be able to go to sleep tight saying, I've settled this issue with Jesus. On the count of three, you raise your hand up every location. One, two, three. Shoot your hands up in the air. Shoot your hands up in the air. Shoot your hands up in the air. Keep them up, keep them up, keep them up. We have some friends coming around. They're gonna hand you a Bible. Once you get your Bible, you can put your hand down. We just wanna be able to give you a copy of the scriptures. Eyes up here. Um, we wanna be able to give you a copy of the scriptures. And there's a bookmark we stuck in there at John's Gospel, chapter one. John was one of the followers of Jesus. I would love for you to read a chapter a day of John's Gospel for the next 21 days. And if you would do that, uh, we'll be, I, I guarantee you, you'll be more robust in your faith after 21 days of reading about who Jesus is through John's eyes. Um, then secondly, if you wouldn't mind grabbing your mobile phone and shooting a text message uh, to 99,000 that says the word fresh life, this is your way of just letting us know about this decision you've made. You can do it right now. And we would love to be able to encourage you. Um, our campus pastors will get in touch with you and you know, try and with your schedule, work you towards a baptism where you can do what many have done in our church this week and, and go public, identifying as a believer, kind of running that flag. It'll be a special moment for you. We'll celebrate with you. Uh, my wife and I wrote a letter. We'd love to be able to mail you. So we can do that if you uh, send your information to us. Uh, 99,000, fresh life, no spaces. And we would be thrilled about that. On the online audience, uh, there's a page at freshlife.church where you can make that same decision and we can encourage you as well. Hey, our hosts are coming, but uh, who's thankful for what God's done this year? Come on. Thank you so much for joining us for Fresh Life Easter. If you made a decision today to accept Christ, congratulations, we are so excited for you. And we would love to get a Bible into your hands to help you start this new relationship. And you can get that by going to freshlife.church and clicking the Know God tab, or you can text Fresh Life to 99000. Also at the Know God tab is a Share Your Story link. Here you can share your story with us or tell us how this ministry has impacted your life. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can click the Give tab where you can set up reoccurring giving or a one-time gift. You could also text the word FRESH to 45777. Thank you so much for joining us today. See you next week.